Hello. Hi. So this is the Weirdest Thing Podcast. I'm your host, Scotty Milder. I'm your other host, Amelia Amfuero. And uh, I believe uh, we're, we're, we're in spooky season now, so I think we have a couple like spooky season episodes. Yeah. Right. Yeah, we're fully in, spooky, fully in spooky season. Also, we are, I don't remember the exact date, but we are right around the uh, one year anniversary. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's for the true. Weirdest Thing podcast. The Weirdest Thing podcast is one year old. Happy anniversary. Yeah. I got you this podcast. Yeah. I was going to say, I didn't, uh, I didn't get you anything. We should have like, <laughs> we should. We should go get some pie or something this yes. week. Yes. Yes. To celebrate. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So we're in spooky season. Like Scotty said, we've got a couple of like spooky ooky stories for uh, y'all. Yay. I love this time of year. The weather's finally starting to cool down, at mm-hmm. least here in New Mexico. Thank God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All the scary movies are like starting to stream on all the different places. Although yes. I'm not, I'm, I'm like waist deep in a criminal minds like binge <laughs> which i realized is like the dumbest thing i could do because i don't have time to do it and there's like a million fucking episodes like oh, i yeah. didn't realize that that show was on the air for like 15 years or something yeah i mean it's kind of the thing that happens if you decide to be like well, what's going on with this like law and order show yeah. and then you know three years later you're like i'm finally done with the first five seasons because it's yeah. just like 87 episodes a season yeah and they're all like <laughs> kind of the same episode it's all basically the same <laughs> yeah yeah i i had started scotty knows this i had started uh i had dipped my toe into the law and order svu uh yeah. just to have something on in the background but i i kind of had to stop because it is it's a lot of copaganda it's yeah. a lot of like cops are always the good guys and poor people of color are always the bad people and mm-hmm. you know unless it's like a sleazy white rich person and you know i was like i'm not, i'm not in them i can't do this that that is one thing i do gotta say like we don't need to spend a lot of time on criminal <laughs> minds but like one thing i do gotta say about that show like i think i was telling you it's like because i never really watched it before mm. and like for one of those like cop procedural type shows it's pretty tropey like every episode ends in a hostage situation right like it always ends with them like coming up to the house and someone pulls a knife on someone and then they have to like use their profiling skills to talk mm-hmm. them down like it's literally every episode but one thing that that show does better is i think it avoids some of the propaganda traps yeah of like the law and order shows um yeah. in fact often it shows like the local cops to be real stupid like they'll mm-hmm. go into these little towns and then the local cops are real dumb which is probably not fair because i don't think like I, it is maybe a little fbi propaganda where no, like okay the genius fbi people come in right and figure it out in two days right and i mean i guess it's still technically like law enforcement yeah um, aganda i guess yeah and then the other thing that i've been like a little bit impressed with the show is that for as fucked up as it is for like a network tv show they do a pretty good job of mixing up the storylines where it's not every week some like white girl kidnapped by like a serial right. killer like they do right. actually kind of like have a mix of victim types and a mix of storylines and stuff right. so it's like not it doesn't fall into the 
what what is it the dead white girl syndrome problem quite as bad as right a lot of those shows too (laughs) yeah but yeah anyway so i'm gonna probably try and table that show for a while because i do want to like catch up on some like horror movies that are have you have you seen that they're making uh, I guess another scream movie because I guess I think yep. I saw stuff today that like Nev Campbell and Courtney Cox um I forgot her name for a second <laughs> uh <laughs> picture like new pictures from the set or whatever and I was looking through and I was like oh cool this looks like you know there's like some I'm seeing some like Latinx actors and that's super cool but also I was like but it feels like they're all side characters and I feel like it's just gonna be it's gonna be more of the same i mean i will say i did a scream rewatch not too long ago mm-hmm. where i watched all of them and like honestly the sequels are kind of better than i remember really yeah they're not great but like i was like oh there's not one of these movies that's like an out and out bad movie i remember really getting kind of effed up by the first one yeah um and being like truly scared by the first one yeah. Uh, and then I'm going to be honest, I don't really remember much about the rest of them. You and I went and saw the fourth one together. I remember that. We did? But then, I, yeah, well, then I rewatched it and I was like, I don't remember this movie at all. Oh my God, I don't remember that <laughs> at all. I remember that we went and watched it. And I think we both left saying like, yeah, we're not going to remember this in a week. And like, <laughs> I think that is exactly what happened. Well, good. I'm glad at least we held up our another bargain. Yeah. The other movie I'm excited about, it's not coming out soon, but they're doing a reboot of Hellraiser and they're doing I saw like that. a gender bendy pinhead. Character. I saw that. Have you seen that they're doing the uh, reboot of Lost Boys, which yeah, I just don't, I, there are a couple like movies your that whole I've... body just like tensed up right there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just feel like there are a couple movies that just don't need remakes. And I feel like Lost Boys is one of them. Princess Bride is another one like yeah. leave them alone oh but also the thing that gives me the most pause about the lost boys reboot is that all of the people that they've cast in it seem real young like mm. real young the kid from it is is oh in that's it. right yeah And like, they're like young, young, young. And I know maybe this is just because we are a product of like the eighties and nineties, but I'm like, no, man, I don't want to see a movie about high schoolers unless high schoolers are like 37 years (laughs) old. Like I don't need to see actual high schoolers in these terrifying positions. Yeah. And I just don't know how you can improve upon the original with that. I mean, my thing, I'm not, I'm not actually like, I like the lost boys, but it wasn't one of my like touchstone movies. So I'm kind of like, I'm I'm curious to see the new one, but my thing is it's like I don't know if anyone remembers a few years ago they did the Fright Night remake no. and like they actually shot that here in New Mexico. They did, um, yeah. <laughs> you're you're always surprised when I tell you that. Um, no, no recollection of that. But like to me, Fright Night and Lost Boys are among those movies that just are so 1980s to me. Yes, that like a reboot just like it could be a decent movie, but it's just going to lose some of that charm. You know, like yeah, I feel like Lost Boys is just it's like Goonies. It's it's like it Goonies. Just Goonies is, is another one. Yeah. yeah, we don't need we don't need anybody coming back to that movie. Additionally, too, because like there's so much stuff that like you can't if you're going to set it in modern times. There's so much stuff that it's like, well, this could just very easily be figured out, solved, whatever, right? With modern technology, yeah, it'd be you know. Well, 
I mean, it'd be interesting. I don't know what they're doing with the Lost Boys. It'd be interesting. Are they going to modernize it, or are they going to do the It thing where they actually keep it set in the 80s? Because you know, know. between It and Stranger Things and stuff, like that's a popular trope right now. So there's kind of no need to modernize it. But I, I don't, don't know. know. We'll see what they yeah. do. We'll yeah. see. Anyway, well, I think you're going first this week. I am going first this week. And uh, I'm going to talk to you about a murder on Big Moose Lake. Ooh, spooky, murder. spooky. Murder. Murder. Okay. Murder. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now we're turning into that scene from Parks and Rec where they're like, <laughs> Bobby Newsom. Um, okay. Sources for this are Wikipedia, The New York Times, uh, so take all that with a grain of salt. Uh, NewYorkUpstate.com, Heather Monroe's blog. I don't know who Heather Monroe is, but okay, wrote this blog, and it's literally called Heather Monroe Blog. Um, several articles at Newspapers.com, Adirondack.net, uh, Law.JRank.org, <laughs> and the New York Daily News. Okay. Okay, so our story begins with Grace Brown. She was born on March 20th, 1886, and she grew up in South Otsalik, New York. Uh, and that's uh, that is a little, it's a small hamlet, almost smack dab in the middle of New York State. Mm. She was the daughter of a successful dairy farmer, and she was like lively. She loved singing and dancing. She was smart. She like made very good friends with her teacher. You know, she was mm-hmm. like, she was, she was a, she was a good chick. Apparently she would attend live music shows like whenever she could. And she loved the song. Won't you come home? Bill Bailey so much that everyone called her Billy. Mm. Um, eventually she would sign correspondence, either the kid or kid. And pe- like that also became a nickname for her. So in a lot of the sources, she was referred to as Billy in a lot of letters and stuff. She's referred to as kid. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, So in 1904, Grace moved to nearby Cortland, New York to live with her sister, and she got a job working at the Gillette Skirt Factory. And that brings us to Chester Gillette. I am not going to talk a whole lot about him because fuck this dude. Um, Mm. But I will say that his parents were like pretty financially stable, not like wealthy, but they were financially stable. They were very religious. Upper middle class. kind of. Probably. Yeah. Uh, They were very religious and Gillette spent a lot of his childhood moving from place to place. I think he was like born in Montana. He lived in Hawaii for a bit. Like Mm -hmm. he was all over him. After dropping out of Oberlin College prep school, which his uncle paid for. So after dropping out, Gillette moved to Cortland in 1905 to work at his other uncle's skirt factory. Okay. Um, because Uncle Gillette was like, you know, a well-to-do, wealthy factory owner. Chester was like mingling with Cortland's upper crust. But he uh, was he, like he was like upper middle, but yeah. like this was like upper. Well, and this is like New York wasps money, so I'm sure they looked way down their nose at him. Well, they didn't because he was like moving in those circles. You know what I yeah. mean? So I don't know that they looked down his nose at him, but he was very. He was like, yes, these are my people. These are the people I should be uh, spending my time with, and it, he had that kind of an attitude. He took an interest in a wealthy socialite named Harriet Benedict, uh, and you know she came. She, she came from a wealthy New York mm-hmm. family. And so like he, I think had, he like might have had sort of long-term designs on Harriet, 
But he was like, you know, I need to get laid in the meantime. So he started up a, I mean, a lot of sources are like, he started up a romantic relationship. Let's be honest. He started up like a sexual relationship with grace. Yeah. So okay. she was like his side piece. Right. Um, and he never had any long-term plans with her because she was just a factory girl. But she was like, oh my God, like the, you know, the nephew of the factory owner is like, I mean, know, I'm sure in he was and... telling her whatever he thought she wanted to hear. Precisely. He was telling her whatever, whatever he thought she wanted to hear to like get her out of her knickers. Right. So in the spring of 1906, Grace discovered that she was pregnant. Uh-oh. I'm sure you, Scotty, and all of our listeners can understand that in 1906, being pregnant out of wedlock was like not a great thing. No. So she decided to go back to her parents' home in South Otslick. She would like write Chester all of the time, basically like begging him to marry her. Right. Um, this is a quote from one of her letters. It said, please write often, dear, and tell me you will come for me before Papa makes me tell the whole affair or they find out for themselves. She wrote that on November 21st, 1906. Mm. Chester was like, of course, not at no. all interested no. in marrying Grace, <laughs> like at all. Yeah. Uh, but she kept trying. She like kept trying to convince him. Like all of the letters that she wrote him were like, I am so sad. Please come and get me. Like I cry every day. There's also, I'll, I'll talk more about it later when I read more excerpts from her letters, but there's a lot of stuff where she's basically like, I don't care what you're doing with who right now. Just please tell me that you're going to come and get me and marry me and that you're going to come for me. And yeah, so she kept, she kept trying to like, you know, essentially, essentially convince him of the shame that she would face if she remained unwed and like how scared she was at being at like the idea of her pregnancy being found out before she was married. Right. Chester was like, whatever. He barely acknowledged her. He barely acknowledged the letters that she sent him. She was writing him, I think like at least like every day, every other day, like she was writing mm. him all the time. And he was like, whatever. And, you know, he knew that like marrying a pregnant factory girl was like going to be the end of his social climbing. So he was like, just right. really not interested in it at all. Yeah. And he, I think he was just kind of hoping that grace would just like disappear <laughs> mm. that he like, I don't know, would so like, she would just go away. She would just stop being a problem. No consequences. No, nothing. Nothing. Yeah. He was really, I think just hoping that like out of sight, out of mind, but she was like, Hey, no, like I'm knocked up. And I like, mm, yeah. I like, I need, I need a husband, please. Yeah. <laughs> and I love you. Um, poor thing. So even though that's what was going on, uh, he did eventually invite grace on a getaway trip to the Adirondacks. Mm. So Let's talk a little, not too much, but a little about the Adirondacks. Okay. Uh, that is mountain range in upstate New York with over 200 lakes and including Lake Placid. Mm -hmm. um, Adirondack is thought to come from the Mohawk word had Hadaronda. Wiki says that word is apparently a derogatory Iroquoian word for the groups of Algonquins who never learned agriculture and therefore had to eat tree bark to survive the winter. I think mm. it means like eater of trees. Okay. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of metal. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, at least they weren't like, well, okay, we don't have anything to do. At least they were like, well, I guess we'll eat these trees. Yeah. So, you know, let's not cast stones. All right. <laughs> 
Uh, okay. Anyways, uh, post-Civil War, there was a group of Americans that found themselves with more wealth than they knew what to do with. And there was also like this new emphasis on like materialism and leisure time. Right. So that led to this explosion of destinations where rich folks could get away from those nasty poor people and like finally relax. We talked about this yeah. a little bit in the engineering blah, blah, blah episode as well. Right, right, right. Um, yeah, they obviously had to get away. So this is what sort of created the birth of resort hotels, okay. uh, which is also interesting to me that like, I think before hotels were like places where you would stay when you were like on your way to somewhere else. Right. right and right. then I think it was around this time that they were like, well, what if we just went to a hotel and we just made stayed it a destination? There? Yeah. Yes. And the Adirondacks were like perfectly suited for New York's elite because they were so close. They're just like, you know, a, a ways out of the city. So the Adirondacks, Catskills, the Poconos mountains, all have a long history of resort life. That is another episode. Uh, so I'm not going to get too, too into that. I will, however, say I'll do a sidebar here that when I was little and I heard people talk about going to the Poconos, I really assumed that that was like a Caribbean island. Oh, I always, I think I found out that the Poconos were like in the Appalachians like three years ago and that blew yeah. my mind. <laughs> Seriously? Yeah. yeah, no, I okay. always assumed it was like, down in the Caribbean or over by Tahiti or something like, yeah. Until somebody that I knew was like, like said something about going to the Poconos and like started to give me more context clues that I was like, wait, where is the, I, I think I found out cause I think I found out cause uh, me and my friend were planning a ski trip in New York and he was like, mm-hmm. yeah, we could go skiing in the Poconos. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> wait, what? Wait, how's that work? Then- <laughs> like water skiing? Yeah, I think he was like real, real judgy when I figured out how uh, dumb I was. Well, sorry, Richie Rich. Sorry that I don't (laughs) vacation in the mountains. Um, Okay, so that concludes our our history lesson on the Adirondacks. And so back to Chester and Grace. Chester's like, yo, why don't we take a little romantic getaway to the Adirondacks? And Grace is like, fuck yes. I mean, probably not, but she was probably like super excited. And she was like, awesome. We're going to get married. She packs her entire wardrobe thinking that she's basically like embarking on her new life with her handsome high-class husband. And, um, unfortunately fails to notice that Chester has only packed like one small suitcase. Uh I saw some sources that said that Chester may have told Grace that he was going to take her to a maternity home to like wait out having the baby. Mm-hmm. Um, I, for me, that's a hard pill to swallow because what she wanted, and I think he knew this very clearly, what she wanted was to like be a, you know, she wanted to be a respectable woman. She was like, right. I want to get married. I like, you're the father of this baby. I want you to like make an honest woman out of me. So I don't, to me, him being like, yeah, I'm going to ship you off to a maternity home. No, just but also, it, it seems like in, more in keeping with his personality that he was he would just try to ignore the problem rather than, right like that yeah. just seems like more work than I imagine he put into it you know right yeah so Chester tells Grace to meet him in Deruiter Deruiter New York (laughs) um, where they would catch a train to Utica so that they wouldn't be like recognized by anybody. They get, they arrive in Utica and they stay at the Tabor hotel. And the next morning they leave BT dubs Gillette skipped out on the bill 
Like mm. he left without paying and they took, they take a train to Tupper Lake. They had planned to spend the day out on the lake, but it was raining. So instead of staying put, Grace and Chester continue on to Big Moose Lake where they settled into the Glenmore Hotel, which actually still exists. Oh, okay. Yeah. There's like a tavern house and stuff there. Creepy. Okay. So Gillette registered himself under the name Carl Graham of Albany, Mm. but he registered Grace under her real name and hometown. And he used the alias Carl Graham because his uh, luggage was monogrammed with C-E-G for Chester Ellsworth Gillette. Mm. And so he was like, my name is Carl Graham. So this Um, seems real, real innocent. Really. Yeah, sure yeah. Nothing's mm, going on here. Yeah, totally above board. <laughs> Everything is on the up and up. So on the morning of July 11th, 1906, one Robert Morrison rented, I think earlier I said something about a letter on November something. That should have been 1905 if it wasn't. I think okay. I may have said 1906. But Okay, back back to me now. Um, so on on the morning of July eleventh, nineteen oh six, one Robert Morrison rents a rowboat to Chester, and this was like everything that I heard about it was like a rowboat, but it was actually like a seventeen foot long. I mean, it's still a rowboat, but it was like a mm-hmm. seventeen foot long like skiff. Yeah, folks saw Chester and Grace like boating around the lake. They even saw them like going ashore for a picnic, but the pair never returned. Mm-mm. So at the end of the day, Morrison is like, okay, well, that nice little young couple never came back, but maybe they just got turned around on the lake and they ended up at another resort. Yeah. The second day, the two still hadn't shown up and Morrison is like, let's go take a look. Maybe something, maybe something happened. Right. The lake was searched by steamboat and they eventually came across the overturned rowboat and someone noticed something odd. It said at the bottom of the lake, I don't think it was quite that they either weren't in deep water right, or it wasn't at the bottom of the lake. Yeah. But something, someone was like, Hey, what is that? And they thinking that it was like garbage, they pulled it up only to discover that it was in fact the body of Grace Brown. Mm -hmm. Her identity wouldn't be known uh, until the cops arrived and discovered that she was in fact a guest at the Glenmore. Um, It was known that she had been with a male companion and the lake was dragged since like, they were like, well, something must've happened. They had an accident and were probably looking for another body as well. Right. But they didn't find anything. So the cops called Grace's family since they knew they had her correct name and hometown on the register. And Grace's family is like, we don't know anything about a Carl Graham, but we do know that she, we do know something about a guy named Chester Gillette. So his master plan is already. Master plan is, yeah, is already. (laughs) Yet another dumbbell murder. Yes. Uh, And so the police are like, well, let's start looking for this Gillette character. They talked to two dudes who were like, we saw a weird guy in a suit in the woods by the lake who asked how to get to Eagle Bay. So the cops are like, okay, well, let's take off in that direction and see what we can find. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, they find Chester in the nearby town of Inlet, New York, where he was promptly arrested. (laughs) From the get-go, Gillette's story was that he had gone out on the lake with Grace and that she was despondent over the pregnancy and that she had jumped into the water, killing herself, that she'd like committed suicide. Yeah. A whole bunch of doctors. I saw like 
five doctors in some sources, six doctors in another, at any case, a whole bunch of doctors conducted an autopsy on Grace's body. And that's when they found out that she was four months pregnant at the time of her death. They also found that she had been alive when she went into the water and that before she died, she'd suffered a pretty serious beating to the face and head. Yeah. So again, master plan, master plan. Faced with this information, Chester was like, okay, my bad. Here's what actually happened. I stood up in the boat to grab my hat and the boat turned over. It capsized and we both fell into the water and I didn't help Grace because I thought that she would drag me under with her. So instead I was like, grab the boat, but she did. And it turned over again. And then she just like sank. And so he's cops, trying to blame the boat for beating. <laughs> I guess. Okay. And the cops were like, yeah. So, so that was his story. But mm. the thing is, I felt like I just said that, but so loudly, but the thing is <laughs> other people saw Chester and grace as they were like making their way around the Adirondacks mm-hmm. and guests at the Glenmore remember seeing Chester speak harshly to Grace. They couldn't hear what he was saying, but it was very clear that he was like kind of berating her, Mm. which also just like poor thing. Like she's pregnant and she thinks that you guys are like on your wedding trip and Yeah. yeah, fuck this guy. Yeah. So they saw that. They also saw him, geez, again, nervously pacing the halls the morning before the boat trip. Mm-hmm. So just like no fucking chill at all yeah. with this dude. Also, Chester was like, we both fell into the lake along with my suitcase, but like all of his shit was dry. Mm. And so he's just like making up lies that don't even make sense. Like, yes. He's just totally like 100% just like, uh, yeah. And then she like fell into the lake. And also, also, also like if that had happened, why didn't he say anything? Yeah. Like, why wouldn't he, why didn't he go back and be like, oh my God, and the boat tipped over and like, and sh- she sank and I like, I, right. I tried to, you know, but no, he was just like, all right, well, cool. I'm going to take off. So through the woods in my suit, through, <laughs> through the woods. Yeah. And apparently he was like, uh, like he had, hold on, I'll get to that. Okay. So they arrest him. They put him on trial for murder. Mm-hmm. Gillette was tried for the murder of Grace Brown. The trial started on November 12th. 1906 in Herkimer, New York. Hope I'm saying that correctly. (laughs) The prosecution was basically like Gillette murdered Grace because she was pregnant and insisting that he marry her. But like the problem was, is that there weren't any witnesses to this. So the DA was like, okay, we have to just gather as much circumstantial evidence as we can. And they did. Um, They gathered the reports of Chester being a dick to Grace at the hotel. Mm -hmm. The totally conspicuous pacing before the boat trip, the alias upon check-in, the fact that along with his suitcase, he also took a tennis racket in the boat with him. Like, yeah, that's, you know, yeah. yeah. Apparently someone also was like, he also like didn't bring her hat or any of her stuff with her. The hat is important because back in that day, like having freckles or a tan was like not right in vogue. So yeah, so there's all this stuff that they're like what like what all this stuff like I said he brings this tennis racket on the boat with him. So the he's tennis bringing all of his stuff. Mm-hmm. Like he's going somewhere and then leaves all her stuff. Yes. Yeah. The tennis racket is thought to be the murder weapon. Mm. At this point, which I'm also just like, I mean, 
you gotta, you gotta, you gotta like go after somebody pretty hard with a tennis racket. Yeah. It's not like a, it's not like a hammer or a pipe. Right. You gotta mean it. Yeah. Good old Harriet Benedict, who I mentioned earlier, who Chester had like long-term designs on, she was put on the stand and she was basically like, I don't know him. (laughs) She was (laughs) like, she was like, I never interacted with him except for a couple of times when he escorted me as part of a group back home after outings. But like, I don't fuck with him, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever. She like, wouldn't even look at him in the courtroom. She was just like, F this dude. Yeah. The DA actually showed this is pretty intense the da actually showed grace's fetus as evidence one because he was worried that the defense would try to deny the pregnancy but the defense was like show it like we don't care he didn't kill her so it doesn't matter that she was pregnant Mm. obviously pretty everybody was pretty shocked yeah (laughs) that's like that's pretty hardcore that's callous yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty like she was pregnant. Look at yeah. her baby. Yeah. Um, that's pretty intense. Uh Gillette's defense team basically was like, no company line is that Grace was distraught at being pregnant and she killed herself. She jumped in. The so plate. they're back to that story. They're back to that story. Okay. And to prove this point, they read Grace's letters that she had sent Chester out loud in the courtroom. Mm. Instead of finding a girl who was suicidal, it was pretty clear that what was actually going on was that they had a girl who had a good deal of faith that her boyfriend would like do the right thing up to a point. So Mm. here's some of those letters. Quote, Chester, I've done nothing but cry since I got here. If you were only here, I would not feel so bad. I know I should worry all the time. I do try to be brave, dear, but how can I when everything goes wrong? I cannot help thinking you will never come for me, but then I say you can't be so mean as that. And besides, you told me you would come and you've never disappointed me when you said you would not. Everything worries me and I'm so frightened, dear. She wrote that on June 19th. Um, Chester, there isn't a girl in the world as miserable as I am tonight and you have made me feel so. Chester, I don't mean that. Dear, you have always been awfully good to me and I know you always will be. You just want to be a coward. I know. Sure at that on June 20th. Chester, if only I could die, I know how you feel about the affair and I wish for your sake you need not be troubled. If I die, I hope you can then be happy. I hope I can die. The doctor says I will and then you can just do as you like. I'm not the least bit offended with you, only I am a little blue tonight and feel this way. Chester, please come and take me away. You won't ever know how much I wish you would come. Chester, I do want you to have a good time now and I won't be cross. I think when I see you, dear, I shall be so glad I can't live. I hope you will be glad to see me. Go where you want to, dear, and don't be angry with me. I want you tonight, and I am so blue. She wrote that on June 21st. (laughs) On June 22nd, Chester wrote Grace saying, don't worry so much and think less about how you feel. I cannot get away before the 7th or the 8th, and I do not think there's any need to worry before then. She replied Mm. with, come to me, Chester, by the 8th of July, or else I will tell the whole world how you've treated me. Two days later, he wrote, perhaps I wrote too harshly Friday about your telephoning and your worry. (laughs) Yeah. Overplayed your hand a little there, Chester. But it was entirely unnecessary and not at all satisfactory because I couldn't say what I wanted. I can get away the seventh or at least I will try. So don't fret so until then. His next letter included plans about where and when to meet without being recognized. Mm -hmm. So... 
Like, yes, there is definitely some stuff in there where she is clearly like very, she's she's upset, upset, but she's upset because I'm sure this guy told her a whole bunch of sweet nothings to get into her pants. And then when she was like, okay, great. Like, this is it. And we're together now. And this is what we are. And he was like, "Ugh, a factory girl. Yeah. So I don't blame her for being like, get your shit together. Like, get me by the eighth or I'm going to ruin your life. I mean, (laughs) like there is, you know, I'm sure that the defense really leaned into her. Like, you know, I wish I could die statements. Right. Like that. But like, like the elephant in the room there is the like, if you don't do the right thing, I'm going to tell everyone how you've treated me. Yeah. Because that's I mean, that's like she just handed the motive on the silver platter. Yeah. So yeah, those letters are not, they're not saving his ass at all. Yeah, at all. The jurors, Grace's family, and both lawyers cried during the reading of Grace's letters. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) And I guess even Chester himself was said to have like teared up a little. I'm I'm skeptical. (laughs) Everyone Um, (laughs) everyone missed the look on your face right there. (laughs) It was my mother's patented side eye of like, mm -hmm. but in the end, the jury believed the prosecution that Gillette had lured Grace with false promises of a romantic trip before their wedding, taken her to a secluded part of the lake, beaten her with a tennis racket, and then he threw her unconscious body into the lake before taking off to another resort. Yeah. The jury deliberated for just over four hours before finding that the murder of Grace Brown was brutal and totally premeditated. Oh, 100%. Mm -hmm. They found Chester Gillette guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced him to death by electrocution. After his sentence was read, Gillette fired off a telegram to his father that only read, I am convicted. Mm. His defense team exhausted their appeals. I also will say that apparently, you know, the the jail that he was in, it was like in the courthouse and like people would walk past his cell to get into the courtroom. <laughs> and like people were like, fuck you. and all this stuff like people like were like people yelled at him apparently it was like people could like offer you know words of of support or not but i but like i saw a lot of other sources that (laughs) said that people were like burn in hell um so you know he got that too okay so his defense team exhausted their appeals and on march 30th 1908 chester gillette was executed via the electric chair at Auburn Correctional Facility. His last words were, quote, tell my mother I am prepared to meet my God. All right. No, like, sorry (laughs) or anything, but cool. Uh, The headline of the Post Standard on March 30th. I'm sorry. I wrote this down because like I was I was looking through a bunch of newspaper articles from the time when the trial was going on and all of the headlines are like this. Okay, this is the headline from one newspaper article. Okay. Chester Gillette dies today in the electric chair. Hughes refuses respite, finds conviction just. New evidence is thrown aside by the governor. Grace Brown brutally murdered by the man she had loved. Death chair in readiness. <laughs> Death chair in readiness. That's also metal as fuck. <laughs> <laughs> But just like, Jesus Christ, like you could have put that in the article. Yeah, that's the way all those newspaper headlines of that time were. It's just like 18 different statements. Yes, just separated by a semicolon. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, like, what else do you need to know? It's all right there. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, Death Chair and Readiness is is a new band name, I call it. Okay. <laughs> it is believed that right before his execution, Chester confessed to the murder of Grace Brown, but he did so to his spiritual advisors, who, of course, never released right. the exact details of what they heard. Gillette's body was buried in an unmarked grave at Seoul Cemetery and celebrity grave finders, dark tourists, mm-hmm. say that the plot he was buried in was paved over by a road so that its exact location would remain unknown forever. Ooh, I, yeah. still, I still want to go. Like people were like, fuck this dude. F <laughs> this dude. Like yeah. sit under the asphalt and think about what you've done for <laughs> eternity. Right. So here's where we get into spooky season. The ghost of Grace Brown is said to haunt Big Moose Lake. Mm. And has been seen many times by guests and employees of the various lodges surrounding the lake. Many people, I mean, like many people, have stories of encountering the ghostly figure of a woman in old-timey clothing in the area, being overcome with like a feeling of sadness, nervousness, or being watched. Mm. Uh, people talk about like taking a walk, you know, by the shore at nighttime, and like their flashlights stop working and their lanterns stop working, and mm. you know, and then they look out over the lake and they see the sort of like ghostly figure. Others say they've seen like a ribbon of smoke hovering over the water that then like turns into this ghostly apparition. Um, That's the the ectoplasm. mm -hmm. Apparently people say that you can see the ghosts of the both of them at the courthouse and that like real creepy lady in white style that it's like the two of them on the boat and like their ghostly apparitions like replay the murder interesting yeah which is like like that is no thank you i what is the movie do you remember i think it's called the i think it's called the lady in white and it's Mm -hmm. a movie about a guy who like a little boy who lives in some coastal town i just remember that there's like an ocean and it's like high up on a cliff and he keeps seeing he gets like locked in his closet at school one night and he sees the ghost of a little girl and basically like sees her get murdered. Do you remember this movie? I'm looking I it had, up. It had the mom, not Judith Light, but the grandmother, I think, from Who's the Boss? Lady in White. I think that's the name of it. Um, but yeah, that sounds real familiar. Um, you know what I'm talking about? It's it had that, a real creepy song in it. It's It was from the 80s. Is mm-hmm. that the one you're thinking of? Yeah. So it's a 1988 American supernatural mystery film. Uh, yeah. Starring Catherine Hellman, who was the grandmother from uh, Who's yes. the Boss. Yeah. I remember watching it. I, I kind of remember that being a genuinely pretty spooky movie, but I probably well, yes. haven't seen it since. Yes, you know. because a little girl dot like a little ghost girl dies over and over and over and over and over again. And like yeah. you don't see it's just like she's being attacked by someone invisible. That's because, right. That's because right. The person I think is like still alive. Um, yeah. But yeah, like super creeps. Very, yeah. very creepy movie. Okay. In 1925, back to my story. In 1925, Theodore Drazier wrote an American tragedy, which was based on the murder of Grace Brown. Okay. Sorry. In 1925, the book was released. I don't know when he wrote it, but it was released in 1925. In 1951, A Place in the Sun, which was directed by George Stevens and uh, which starred Shelley Winters as a dowdy, nagging version of Grace and Montgomery Mm. Clift as Chester Gillette 
was released. Mm -hmm. The movie also stars a 19-year-old Elizabeth Taylor as the woman Clift murders Winter's character to be with. It's also said that the movie Matchpoint is sort of loosely based on the story. Mm -hmm. I could Um, definitely see that. The story has inspired countless books and plays, like even some operas. It's also covered on a couple of episodes of the OG Unsolved Mysteries, both the ones with Robert Stack and Dennis Serena. Um, Robert Stack... In it, you know, he's like out in the woods in the like at the end of the episode, and he's like, perhaps like the unfair portrayal of Grace's character is a sh- as like a shrewish, shrewish, nagging woman, and all these stories is why her ghost haunts Big Moose Lake to this day, <laughs> which is like so rude. That's, yeah, come on, guys. <laughs> come on, like she deserves better than that. But it's true. Like in the movie, I mean, one, it's a 19-year-old Elizabeth Taylor, and she is yeah. just like radiant. Like, like luminescent. I would have to say. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And Shelly Winters is like they do everything to make her. And I feel like I've seen bits of a, a place in the sun. I haven't seen the whole thing, but she is like, she's real like, man, like, why don't you want to be with me? And all this stuff. And it's yeah, like, yeah, cool. I feel like I've seen it and I didn't know it was based on any sort of true story. But I remember mm-hmm. my memory is that her character is incredibly irritating. Yeah, it's I think it's kind of like, well, of course he killed her. (laughs) And it's like, no, this is the golden age of the 1950s, people. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. God bless. Um, In 2006, that was the 100th year anniversary of Grace's murder. Apparently, thousands of visitors descended upon the area to honor her story. Hmm. Events included boat tours along Big Moose Lake, the dedication of a historical marker at her grave in South Ostalik, film screenings, trial reenactments, lectures. They like, I think they did like dramatic readings of her letters and stuff like that. Yeah. And I think like the people from the town were like, hey, like we're trying to kind of do this for more like a literary, like media point and not really from like a ghost thing but yeah. of course people were like ghosts yeah but they did do that they did do this like 100th anniversary i was about to say celebration remembrance yeah. of what Memorial. happened to her yeah yes uh and that is the sad tale of the murder of grace brown by the coward chester gillette and the moral of this story is to not fuck white dudes because they will <laughs> literally kill you to avoid breaking up with you yeah. All opinions uh, can be directed to Amelia Poirot. <laughs> <laughs> or I guess at least use, at least definitely use multiple forms of protection when effing a white dude uh, so that you can just like bow out when he starts to get weird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've never, I've never heard that story. I will say like that area of like the Adirondacks, the Poconos, like yeah, those Appalachian mountains, like, you know, we grow up out here in New Mexico, Colorado, you know, we're used to the Rockies, these big yeah. imposing mountains, but there's something uniquely creepy about those East coast mountain ranges. And like, there's just a lot of, there's just a lot of ghosts in those. It feels that all feels real ghosty out there. Yeah. 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 100%. All right. Well, I've got a fairly different story. Um, Fantastic. Hold on. Hold on. I need to close my door. Okay. Hold on. on. Welcome to our show.
I'm ready. Okay. So tonight I am going to tell the story of the Dyatlov Pass incident from 1959. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so my sources are Wikipedia, the Russian conspiracy theory that won't die. Uh, that's from the Atlantic 2020. Okay. And then has an old Soviet mystery at last been solved. This is by Douglas Preston from the New Yorker 2021. And I believe that Douglas Preston is the same Douglas Preston who's like the sort of horror sci-fi pop novelist. So. Oh, okay. Yeah, because he do, he does like nonfiction stuff as well. And okay. then of course the website dietlovepass.com, which has okay. a lot of like really cool. And anyone have you ever heard of the Dietlov Pass incident? Is this yes. at all familiar? So you know. Yes, very. Yeah, I was gonna say this is definitely one of those if you're at all into like creepy conspiracy theory type stuff this is kind of up there with the philadelphia experiment things like that in terms of one of the more well-known ones yes um but for those of you guys who don't know about this uh let me just dive right in real quick warning i'm going to be uh horribly mispronouncing a lot of big russian names so you know just bear with me unacceptable (laughs) well you're gonna have to accept it because (laughs) it's gonna happen (laughs) please send all pronunciation (laughs) corrections to the weirdest thing podcast (laughs) at gmail.com yes please do because i never check it okay (laughs) (laughs) into the void okay okay all right i'm ready here we go in 1959 there was a 23 year old soviet radio engineering student named igor dyatlov he was uh, a student at the ural Polytechnical Institute in Yekaterinburg. And this is in the what was called the Sverdlovsk Oblast region of the Soviet Union. And I looked on the map. It's like pretty right in the middle of what you would call Western Russia. Like okay. it's kind of right on that border of where it turns into like Siberia and like Asian Russia. And it's okay. like kind of right in the middle in those Ural Mountains. So pretty remote. Uh, this is what the New Yorker article had to say about Dyatlov. It said, Igor Dyatlov was a tinkerer, an inventor, and a devotee of the wilderness. Born in 1936 near Sverdlovsk, now Yekaterinburg, he built radios as a kid and loved camping. When the Soviet Union launched Sputnik in 1957, he constructed a telescope so that he and his friends could watch the satellite travel across the night sky. So like a real industrious dude and like kind of a dork. It sounds like like super nerdy into science, all that, but also like real, like typically I think like Russian, like rugged mountaineer kind of. Yeah. 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 So he was an experienced hiker and skier. He had already led a bunch of like, these wilderness trips, like really arduous, like wilderness trips, often using like equipment that he himself invented to essentially like go deep into the like Russian wilderness and survive. So he put, he was putting together a, another one of these like wilderness trips, a basically mm-hmm. a cross country skiing expedition um, that was going to go all the way across the Northern Ural mountains of the Sverdlovsk Oblast into the, like the Northern part of the in oblast by the way in russian is like it's sort of equivalent to state i think okay just like a big region basically okay okay so he was putting together he he basically went to the sporting club at his university and said i want to put together this big expedition and he ended up choosing eight men and two women to accompany him so it was 10 people total at least at the at the start of this expedition. 
Mm -hmm. Uh, Most of them were also students at the university. And the idea was, this is also from the New Yorker. The idea was that it would exemplify the boldness and vigor of a new Soviet generation, an ambitious 16 day cross country ski trip in the Urals, the North South mountain range that divides Western Russia from Siberia and thus Europe from Asia. They were all grade two hikers and skiers. This was, uh, and I, kind of tried to look up what this meant basically this was like a soviet certification or soviet classification and if you're grade two this meant your experience with like climbing up to twenty thousand foot mountains as well as with like belaying down the mountains so like okay pretty experienced okay um on their return they would have received what was called a grade three certification which is like you know just like the next step okay um and grade three was the highest certification you could get Okay. Um, Dyatlov, he designed a route that would have taken the group, like I said, into the far northern region of the Sverdlovsk Oblast along the upper streams of the Lazva River. The goal was to reach a mountain called Otorten, which was about six miles north of where the quote incident ended up occurring. So mm. basically, meaning that like they had almost made it to their destination when the incident. Wow. Okay. It would also take them through the traditional territory of the Mani people. So the Manny are an indigenous people from this region. They're still, and I think to this day, this is true. They're still living kind of like a semi-traditional lifestyle, you know, hunting, reindeer herding, etc. This is going to come into the story a little bit later. Um, so just okay. depend on that. Okay. Uh, it was going to be about a 200 mile trip, cross country skiing trip. So, you know, not just like a nice jaunt through the country, but like this real, like, intense 200 mile trip and then they were doing it they had they had it planned for february which was the most difficult time of year to make the trip Mm. i mean february in like the russian ural mountains like they're they're trying to prove something you know okay all right so this is from the new yorker it says diatlov's group would ski 200 miles on a route that no russian as far as anyone knew had taken before the mountains were gentle and rounded, their barren slopes rising from a vast boreal forest of birch and fir. The challenge wouldn't be rugged terrain, but brutally cold temperatures, deep snow, and high winds. Mm-hmm. So they left the city of Yekaterinburg uh, by train on January 23rd, 1959. And then in the early morning hours of January 25th, they set out from the town of Ivdel in a truck. This took them to another little town. So now they're in the northern part of the oblast. It took them to the town of Vizhai for a few days and then while they were there they just like gorged on bread to like you know carbo load basically right right <laughs> build up right. their energy levels for this trip. right and then on january 27th they started their trek toward this or torton mountain okay the next day one member of the group a guy named yuri yudin unfortunately he had some health problems he had rheumatism and he had a congenital heart problem mm. and this forced him to turn back so Ooh. the nine remaining hikers just continued on their way mm-hmm. okay as far as what happened after that it's all been pieced together by the search and rescue teams that found diaries and cameras after the fact okay were able to kind of piece together their movements okay so they think that on january 31st the group arrived at like a highland area and prepared to begin climbing up into the, these like rolling mountains okay they cached some surplus food and equipment that they would need for the trip back Okay. And then on the next day, they began to work their way up through this mountain pass. The plan was to get over the pass down to the opposite side where there was this kind of like wooded area. 
and they would make camp there. Unfortunately, what happened though is a big snowstorm and windstorm moved in. Oof, okay. Um, so they got caught in a snowstorm and had basically zero visibility. There's one last photograph of the group that they took during this windstorm that like shows them all kind of moving forward and like the lead skiers are like disappearing in this like sheet of snow. And because of the no, low- like nothing about this sounds like anything I want oh, anything it, to have any part of. You know, like to build on what we were talking about last week with dark tourism, like there's all sorts of fucked up places I want to go visit. But like yeah. the type of stuff I don't want to do is like hike Everest. I like, would love to see Everest. Right. I mean, I could imagine and then be like, like that is a thing and then go on with the rest of my life. Right. Like I could imagine even like hiking up to the base camp, which I think mm. is, I mean, even that it's like 20,000 feet. It's like not easy to get to base camp, but that's like yeah. doable. But like actually hiking Everest, fuck no. Like, like this kind of thing, like you said, like there's no part of this that's, that's appealing to me. Mm-mm. But because of the low visibility, they basically veered off course. They got a little bit lost. <sighs> And they ended up deviating. They were kind of trying to go, I think, sort of straight north, but they kind of like skewed off to the west. And they ended up heading toward the top of a mountain called Nolat Siakal, which means dead mountain. Okay. They realized they're in the wrong place. You know, they started down the other side of the mountain, realized they're in the wrong place. And rather than keep moving, they decided to set up camp, like kind of on the slope of this mountain. Okay. Now, if they'd gone less than a mile, they would have made it down to a forest, which would have, like, offered some shelter from the storm. And it's not clear why they stopped where they did, but this year, Yudin later sort of speculated. He said that Dyatlov probably did not want to lose the altitude they had gained, or he uh, decided to practice camping on the mountain slope. <sighs> but basically, I think if they had gone down to the mountain, that would have just meant they'd have to hike back up the next day to like get back on course. So they just camped on the side of the mountain. Okay. So what happened? Well, after this, it gets real unclear, but Dyatlov had told the sports club back in Ekaterinburg um, that once they returned on the return trip to this town of Vizhai, he would send a telegram telling them, Hey, Mm -hmm. we made it. This was expected no later than like February 12th, but no telegram was received. Okay. By February 20th, the sports club alerted the families of all these hikers. The families then demanded a search and rescue operation. So the sports club was like affiliated with this polytechnic university. So Mm -hmm. the university were the first to send out a search and rescue team, which was mostly volunteer students and teachers from the university. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then it became clear like this was going to be an intense search, particularly since they had later found out they veered off course. So like it's a big area to look for. They weren't where they were supposed to be. Yeah. You know, army and police ultimately did join the search on February. Let's see. I think on February 25th, I forgot to write down the date, but I think this is right. On February 25th, this search party or group found their tracks. They were along the a frozen river, which I think was probably this Lazva River, which okay. led to this dead mountain. So they were like, oh, they went the wrong way. That's oh, when they okay. figured out they went the wrong way. So they ended up going up the dead mountain, went down, started down the other side of the slope where they found the group's abandoned tent. That was found on February 26th. Searcher Mikhail Sharavin Uh, found the tent and he later said that it was quote half torn down and covered with snow it was empty and all of the group's belongings and shoes have been left inside 
And then from that Atlantic article, it says inside food supplies and outer clothing were laid out as if the group had been about to cook dinner. Nine pairs of boots stood along one wall. Bizarrely, the tent appeared to have been slashed open from within. Mm. So like this means that like something happened Mm -hmm. that forced them out of the tent that was so frightening that they actually like cut. Instead of like going out the exit. out. The searchers then found nine sets of footprints leading away from the tent. And it appeared that the prints were made by people who were either barefoot, wearing socks, or maybe like a single shoe. Okay. And keep in mind, like temperatures were thought to be like negative 30 degrees, negative 40 degrees. Yeah. With high, high, high wind chill Mm -hmm. on top of that. So this is not looking good. Mm-hmm. So the footprints led down to the edge of this wood, like it went down toward where this wood was, but then got covered in snow. Okay. But the searchers were sort of able to be like, well, clearly they were heading towards the woods. So they went down there and at the forest edge, they found the remains of a small fire near like a big cedar tree. And that's where they found the corpses of Yuri Krivonyshenko and Yuri Doroshenko, which are both men. Mm -hmm. Uh, they were found shoeless wearing only their underwear and their bodies had liver mortis, which means like that's the blood pooling after Mm. someone dies. Mm -hmm. And the way the blood had pooled suggested that someone had actually turned the bodies over after they died. Really? Um, Yeah. Which is, I mean, I'll, I'll get, I'll come back to that because there's theories about that. Okay. Um, the cedar tree, they also saw that the branches were broken on the cedar tree up to about five meters off of the ground. This suggested that at least one of the hikers had gone up there for some reason, probably to try and look around. Mm. Um, Later forensic tests showed that there were actually traces of skin embedded in the tree bark. Mm. So this confirmed that someone had climbed the tree. Okay. As the searchers continued to search the snow between the tent and the edge of the forest, they found three more bodies. So they found Dyatlov, a woman named Zenaida Komgorova, and another man named Rustam Slobodin. The way they died suggested that they've been trying to make it back up the slope to the tent. They were also, I think, mostly in their underwear or like half dressed. Mm -hmm. Um, there were no injuries shown on their bodies, which would have led to death. So, and we thought, well, clearly they died of hypothermia. Okay. Slobodin did have a small skull fracture, but the doctors didn't think it would have been fatal. Okay. It took two months to find the remaining four bodies. They were eventually found on May 5th beneath four meters of snow in a ravine about 75 meters deeper into the woods. Mm. Uh, They were laying at the bottom of the ravine in like a stream of running water. Mm. Uh, They were better dressed than the others. And it actually looked like they had exchanged clothes with each other. So like, like one of the men was found wearing the fake fur coat of one of the women. Okay. So, you know, there's questions about that that I'll come back to. Now, the condition of these bodies completely changed the investigation. Okay. Because whereas the original bodies had no injuries and made it look like pretty clearly like they died of hypothermia, three of the four of these bodies had massive fatal injuries. So the body of Nikolai Thibault Brignole had major, like his skull was crushed, basically. And then both Dubinina and Zola Turyov had massive chest fractures, like compression fractures. Mm -hmm. The medical examiner said that the force necessary to cause injuries like those chest fractures would have been, quote, extremely high. 
mm. and compared it to the force of a car crash. Okay. And then this Dubinina was also found to be missing her tongue, her eyes, and part of her lips. Uh, and then Zolotaryov was missing his eyes. Now it's believed that's that's probably less mysterious because since they were found in this running stream, like they would have been less preserved than the others. And these are like the softest tissue. So it could have mm-hmm. been animals, could have been who knows. It looks like this group had tried to protect itself from the elements by digging a shelter in the heavy snow, but they're mm. actually found like away from the sh- shelter like i said basically lying in the stream at the bottom Mm -hmm. the strangest thing is that one of the hikers clothing was found and i can't remember i didn't write down who but one of the hikers clothing was found to be radioactive just one of them just one of them what okay yeah so the investigation was started by a prosecutor named lev ivanov Mm -hmm. um this was immediately after the first five bodies were found it seemed like at first to be a strange but pretty straightforward case of hypothermia mm-hmm. although it was unclear why they had left the tent in the first place why they had cut their way out of the tent left right. like when they're essentially in their underwear right but once they found this like second group of bodies or really the third group of bodies uh were found on may 5th this totally threw that theory into question because of the massive injuries on these bodies one thing that was very strange about that is that there were no like external wounds associated with like the fractured skull or the crushed chests like Mm -hmm. there were no puncture wounds basically it's just like some sort of high pressure something yeah yeah now Remember where I said that they were moving through this area that was traditionally associated with the Mansi people? Yes. Well, of course, the first thing that happened is that the Mansi were blamed. Right. The The theory was that they had gone through this area and the Mansi didn't like them being there and attacked them essentially for trespassing in their area. Okay. Um, so they even brought in several Mansi people in the region and subjected them to interrogations. And we're talking Soviet interrogations. Right, so of course. I'm guessing there were no like reading of your Miranda rights. Right, kind of, right. You know. But then as the evidence continued, they were like, well, this can't be the case. And for one thing, there are no external wounds, like I said. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't look like anyone was like, you know, cut with blades or anything like that. And also there are only the nine footprints of the hikers. Right. Like that's pretty definitive. Like I said, the temperatures were extremely cold when the incident occurred. Like I said, up to maybe negative 40 degrees Fahrenheit, Mm. which again was just like, you know, the big question was why were they all half naked? Right. And it just seems to go back to something happened when they were in the tent that caused them to panic and get out of the tent. Yeah. Cut their way out of the tent. On May 28th, this uh, Lev Ivanov essentially closed the investigation without any real conclusion drawn. Mm-hmm. He said that his role was only to determine whether a crime had been committed, not to clarify what happened. Mm. And he said, well, <laughs> so he's like, he's like, well, homicide wasn't done. a Good factor. Good luck, everybody. Yeah, basically. Yeah. He was like, well, there was no homicide. And what he said was, it should be concluded that the cause of the hiker's demise was an overwhelming force, which they were not able to overcome. So these are like the basically the conclusions that were found by that investigation that says six of the group members died of hypothermia and three of fatal injuries there were no indications of other people nearby on Mm -hmm. this dead mountain apart from the nine travelers the tent had been ripped open from within the victims had died six to eight hours after their last meal traces from the camp showed that all the group members left the campsite of their own accord on foot 
Some levels of radiation were found on one victim's clothing. That is so weird. And that the fatal injuries of the three bodies could not have been caused by human beings because, quote, the force of the blows had been too strong and no soft tissue had been damaged. Mm. And then at the end, this was classified as secret, which was pretty routine for the Soviets, and they moved on. And I think it was just not very well known. I don't think it was even known that this happened in the U.S., Wow. Uh, until after the fall of the Soviet Union. Now, later, this prosecutor, this Lev Ivanov, in 1990, he retired, or he had retired by 1990. And after the fall of the Soviet Union, he published an article which claimed that while he was compiling this 1959 report, he'd been pressured not to include his views on what happened. The article was called The Enigma of the Fireballs and said that the skiers had been killed by heat rays or balls of fire associated with UFOs. What? Okay. Yeah. And we'll, we'll get to that here in a second. He's, he says, in his original examination of the scene, this is from the New Yorker, it says, in his original examination of the scene, Ivanov had found trees with unusual burn marks, which, quote, confirmed that some kind of heat ray, say, or a powerful force whose nature is completely unknown to us, acted selectively on specific subjects, in this case, people. The last photograph in Krivonashenko's camera showed flares and streaks of light against a black background. So this, of course, has led to all sorts of theories. Right. Uh, let's just go through some of the theories. So probably the favorite theory of the Russian government okay. is that it was a photo flash bomb dropped by a U.S. spy plane. Okay. So what a photo flash bomb is, is it's ordnance dropped by surveillance craft. It's kind of like a flashbang. You know what a flashbang is? Yeah. It's like it, it detonates and it emits like a massive amount of light basically like hundreds of millions of candle power and intensity. Mm -hmm. And this is so it's a flash. It's like a camera flash. So the mm -hmm. idea is you drop one of these bombs and then you take an aerial photo. Okay. Um, and it's a way of being able to take a photo of something you're trying to spy on right. without having to fly at a low altitude. So the theory is that the photo flash bomb detonated closer to the ground than it was meant to because of the high elevation. And that at the very least, this would have scared the shit out of the hikers. Okay. But also, if it had detonated close enough to them, it could have severely injured them. Okay. So like I said, this is real popular in Russia, particularly, and has kind of been encouraged by like Russian government propaganda, mm -hmm. which is ever eager to blame Americans for everything. Right. Like, and this Atlantic article really goes through just the, the Russian, like, sorry, I don't mean to offend any Russian listeners, but the Russian propensity towards conspiracy theories. Okay. Particularly anti-American ones. Mm -hmm. um, probably the other most popular theory in Russia, not popular by the government, but popular by the people. Okay. Is that it was actually Russian military tests, missile oh, tests. Oh, okay. So this theory alleges that the group made camp right in the path of like a Soviet bombing exercise. And mm. that, again, kind of like the photo, photo flash theory, they would have been startled awake by the loud booms and fled in panic. And if the detonations were close enough, it could have actually caused some of these injuries. Okay. And then, of course, because of the extreme cold and the darkness, they weren't able to get back to their tent. Now, there are records of parachute, what are called parachute mines, being dropped. They're basically, mines dropped with a parachute mm -hmm. and detonated above ground. There are records of some of the tests, kind of parachute mine tests, kind of happening in the area around mm -hmm. the same time. Mm -hmm. And then there were also these eyewitness reports of sightings of glowing orange orbs floating or falling from the sky. Now, this has also, of course, led to the UFO theory. 
Right. Right. It does seem like these glowing orb sightings, in fact, though, were actually seen weeks after the hikers' deaths and can be attributed to documented missile tests Hmm. that happened after the fact. Okay. Or so they would have you believe. Right. Now, in 2008, a three-foot-long piece of metal was actually found in the area, and according to a group called the Dyatlov Foundation, which took possession of this piece of metal, they claim that it's part of a Soviet ballistic missile. Ooh, okay. In 1990, again, it's it seems like in 1990 when when the Soviet Union fell apart, like everyone was just like, I've got some tea I'm going to spill, you know? <laughs> Look, I'm ready <laughs> to talk. Yeah. So the former head of the Communist Party in a nearby town suggested in a newspaper article that there were holes found in the tent and that he thought these were probably caused by falling and or burning shrapnel from like detonated mines or rockets. Okay. Um, And then it's even suggested that the Soviets might've been testing some radiological weapons because of course of the radioactivity on the one hiker's clothes. And I could not find anywhere where it said whose clothes I might've just missed it. Whose clothes, but one of the hikers had radiation on his clothes, his or her clothes. So strange. Okay. So here's a quote from the Atlantic. It says, the, and this is in the first person I uh, from this, um, who was the author, this Alec Loon. He says, when I spoke to Yuri Kuntsevich, that's actually the name, Yuri mm-hmm. Kuntsevich, mm-hmm. who attended the students' funerals as a boy and has since become an oft-quoted researcher and head of the Dyatlov Memorial Fund, mm-hmm. I was hoping for a clear-eyed assessment to cut through the noise. Instead, he argued that the students had been asked by a Western agent named, quote, The Mole to photograph a secret missile test. After doing so, they were murdered by drunken convicts guarding the pass. <laughs> Um, it says then they okay. moved the tent 1.5 kilometers to an impractical place that was done by a mop-up team of soldiers they had several helicopters he told me matter-of-factly so okay. i'll let you you know okay. decide what you think now the new yorker quotes the same guy this this yuri Kuntsevich. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that quote, it says, Kuntsevich told me that the Russians generally favor one of two theories. The skiers died because they'd stumbled into an area where secret weapons were being tested. Alternatively, mm-hmm. the party was killed by mercenaries, probably American spies. Kuntsevich insists that the first of these theories is the correct one, and it's also what the families tend to believe. The idea is that a missile launch of some kind went disastrously wrong inflicting severe injuries on some of the skiers and forcing the group to flee their tent, at which point they either froze to death or were killed by military observers. Yuri Yudin, who was the uh, one who had to turn back, mm-hmm. likewise maintained that the deaths were not natural. Not long before he died in 2013, he declared that his teammates had been taken from the tent at gunpoint and murdered. Dubanina, he said, may have had her tongue cut out by the killers because she was the most outspoken of the group. Hmm. Now, this is the guy, he had been part of the expedition, but he, mm-hmm. like, turned back on the first day. So I'm like, yeah, where are you getting your information there, buddy? Yeah. And okay. the, the New York article continues. It says, the theory, however, is not consistent with what was found at the site. <laughs> <laughs> however, none of it matches. Right. Okay. Uh, it says there was no evidence that other people had been there. Snow does not lie. 
It would have been close to impossible to erase signs of the people and equipment involved in killing the group and restaging the scene. Besides, why make the staging so elaborate and bizarre? Why scatter the bodies around the landscape? Cut off the clothing of some and dress others in it. Build a snow den, bury four bodies in 10 feet of snow, light a fire, and climb a tree to break branches, leaving skin on the bark. The theory would also suggest that there was a secret weapons base in the area or that an errant missile had exploded over it. Yet, despite the mass declassification of documents from the Soviet era and the diligent searches of Dyatlov enthusiasts, no such evidence has emerged. Mm-hmm. Okay, so could be U.S. spy plane, could be, you know, Soviets being real Soviet about stuff and murdering mm-hmm. a bunch of people, or it could be an avalanche. Okay. So let's get to some of the more natural theories. So an avalanche or even just the threat of one. So this is the conclusion that was reached by a guy named Andrei Kuryakov on July 11th, 2020. Okay. He's the deputy head of the Urals Federal District Directorate of the Prosecutor General's Office. And I think they've they've done like a bunch of follow-up investigations over the years, trying to like with more modern equipment, modern technology, modern forensics, trying to like put this together. Mm-hmm. And then apparently there was also a group of Swiss researchers that did a computer simulation that also sort of suggested that an avalanche to be at fault. A guy named Benjamin Radford, uh, he's a skeptic who apparently this is this quote is in reaction to claims that the group were killed by a Yeti. Okay. Um, <laughs> I was holding out hope for a Yeti, but okay. Yeah, well, we'll get there. The group woke up in a panic and cut. He, he's basically saying that the avalanche theory is the most likely. He says mm-hmm. the group woke up in a panic and cut their way out of the tent, either because of an avalanche or covered the entrance of their tent, or because they were scared that an avalanche was imminent. Better to have a potentially repairable slit in a tent than risk being buried alive in it under tons of snow. Mm-hmm. They were poorly closed because they had been sleeping and ran to the safety of the nearby woods where the trees would help slow the oncoming snow. In the darkness of night, they got separated into two or three groups. One group made a fire, hence the burned hands, while the others tried to return to the tent to recover their clothing since the danger had passed. But it was too cold and they all froze to death before they could locate the tent in the darkness. Does not explain, though, the massive injuries on the third group of bodies. Yeah. And this is from the New Yorker. It says two photographs taken by the Dyatlov party at around 5 PM while they pitched the tent show that they cut deeply into the snowpack at right angles to the slope, forming a hollow. They had picked a spot where the mountain peak offered some shelter from the strongest winds. Later in the evening, Kuryakov said a snow slab detached from the slope above and buried most of the tent pinning down the occupants and possibly causing injuries. Fearing that a full-scale avalanche was imminent, the skiers cut their way out of the downside slope of the tent and fled to a rock ridge 150 feet away, which Kuryakov termed a natural avalanche limiter. But the big avalanche didn't come, and in pitch darkness, they were unable to find their way back to the tent and took shelter in the woods. Um, Blah, 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 blah. So there's some contradictory evidence. Like, you know, the avalanche theory seems... Pretty likely, except mm-hmm. there were no obvious signs that an avalanche had taken place. Like an avalanche leaves telltale signs and right. like debris scattered over a particular area. And there were no signs, like when the search party got there, you know, within like a week yeah, um, or a couple of weeks, there were no signs of that. And the bodies were not found in like super deep snow. It was a pretty shallow layer of snow. So if an avalanche had occurred, it's unlikely the tent would have remained standing. 
Right. right. And then in over a hundred subsequent expeditions to the region, no one has ever reported anything that's even close to like avalanche conditions. And they've done all sorts of like studies with modern terrain physics. Mm-hmm. And it shows that this location is extremely unlikely to generate an avalanche. There are like close by areas that are more likely like steeper slopes and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But this area isn't particularly one that would be avalanche prone. And Dyatlov and Zolotaryov were both real experienced hikers and skiers. So it seems like they would have known that. Right. And they wouldn't have set up a tent somewhere that would have been at risk for an avalanche. Um, <sighs> okay. And also like... The pattern of the footprints is weird because it they don't seem to be hurried or panicked. It doesn't seem like people were running away from the tent. Yeah. They were just kind of moving away from the tent. What? A couple other theories. One is about the catabotic wind, which okay. is a very rare, extremely high violent wind event um, that they may have encountered without expecting it. It's possible that this catabotic wind would have pushed snow up against the entrance of the tent which apparently it was sat like towards the upper slope of the mountain okay the wind had like basically covered the entrance in snow it also might have partially collapsed the tent and actually started to slide the tent down the mountain which might have made them think it was an avalanche okay which again would have caused them to leave in a panic half closed because they've been sleeping Okay. Um, now it's also possible that like one of them was standing outside the tent and this catabotic wind basically whipped up and blew one of them off down the mountain and the others went after in a rescue attempt. But you'd think they would have like known to put some clothes clothes on, on something. Yeah. Here's okay. One of my favorite theories okay. is uh, that it could have been infrasound. This is a hypothesis put forward by an author, a guy named Donnie Icar. Okay. In his book, Dead Mountain. And basically, he claims that the wind going past this mountain could cause what's called a Carmen Vortex Street, which is, and I tried to read the Wikipedia page on it, and it's like fluid dynamics and science and blah, 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 blah. Don't care. Like, but basically, it's like just a little bit of what the Wikipedia article said. It says it's a quote, repeating pattern of swirling vortices caused by a process known as vortex shedding which is responsible for the unsteady separation of flow of a fluid around blunt bodies. And then it gets into a lot of sciencey stuff that I didn't understand. So we're going <laughs> to okay. move on. But what the theory is, is that this series of vortices would cause an infrasound, which is like a low frequency sound effect. And there have been studies that low frequency, inaudible, low frequency sound actually can induce panic in humans. Okay. So his theory is that this infrasound, which they wouldn't have even been aware of, caused physical discomfort and mental distress in the hikers and essentially pushed them into a delusional state. Okay. Which would have pushed them to leave the tent by whatever means necessary. So cutting their way out of the tent and running off down the mountain half naked. But once they were down by the forest, they would have kind of real, they would have come back to their senses and been like, oh shit, we better get back to the tent and like put some clothes on. Mm -hmm. But by then it was too late, negative 40 degrees, et cetera. And then he thinks that the extreme injuries on the May 5th bodies were simply caused by them stumbling around in the dark and falling into this ravine. Okay. Um, But there are a lot of people that call that into question because they're like, it wasn't like they fell off a cliff. They fell into a ravine. So like that kind of impact doesn't seem likely. And there's no signs of them like tumbling down a ravine. 
You right. Know. So some of the weird theories. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Let's get to, let's get to the weird ones. Now. And I'm not going to go too deep into it. Cause it's like, y'all know what it's going to be. The Yeti. Yeah. Right. Yes. They're attacked yep. by Yeti. Well, what's the problem with this theory? No footprints. No footprints. Right. The KGB or the CIA. <laughs> No footprints. <laughs> no footprints. Um, I've also seen a lot of um, people trying to say it was the KGB and the CIA working together, which in 1959 with that. And why? Yeah. Like, why? What, 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 like, what was special about these kids and their like right. outdoor expedition? We're, we're going to take the two biggest superpowers who are at each other's throat, but they're right. going to team up to murder nine hikers. Yeah. Like, that makes sense. Aliens, because of course, aliens. Okay, aliens. I believe they may, may I, they have the science to get rid of footprints. I buy that. Yeah, well, and also like if they're shooting at people with heat rays and stuff. And yeah, like, you 100%. know the alien, the aliens could have been creating the infrasound to yeah. force them out of the tent. And the radiation. Yeah, my money's but, on aliens. I mean, I'm gonna believe aliens over the KGB. You know, I mean, I'm gonna believe aliens over the KGB slash CIA right. theory. <laughs> <laughs> and the yeti um one that i i was like oh i could get into this but then i'm like this this is whatever the actual theory is going to be is going to be real stupid uh-huh. is that there's a subterranean race of arctic dwarves that came out of a cave and attacked them a couple problems with okay. this no footprints <laughs> also like i'm sorry guys but it's not it's not lord of the rings like um, okay this is not what it is okay. um, i've seen a few people i think half jokingly blame cthulhu okay, <laughs> and okay. i'm like sure sure like, i'll go with that about as likely as any of the others here's what i think happened okay what do you think i'm gonna say i'm gonna say what that this is what i think happened with the caveat that there are plenty of things i can't explain and that this doesn't explain away Okay. But I think it was simple hypothermia and paradoxical undressing was Mm. at least the start of it. Okay. So basically what this means, what paradoxical undressing is, you've probably heard of it, Mm -hmm. is that when someone is in the clutches of hypothermia and their cognition starts to degrade, Mm -hmm. people will start to feel a, quote, burning warmth through their body. Mm-hmm. And this actually leads like the, they've documented this uh, with people who are uh, hiking up Everest mm-hmm. is people will sort of get delirious and then start stripping off their clothes and trying to get out of the tent. Mm-hmm. Like this has been documented over and over and over. again. So the fact that the footprints don't seem hurried, like they weren't running in a panic. Mm-hmm. I actually think it kind of fits the idea that like, I think probably what happened is if this, what was it? The, the, the catabotic wind, mm-hmm. if the wind chill pushed the temperatures way lower than what their gear could handle, uh-huh. they could have been in the tent safely in the tent, but hypothermia could have still been setting in, setting in. I mean, a tent is a, t- a tent is a tent. Right. Like let's let's not give the tent too much credit here. It's right. not like they were like, you know, in a log cabin with a fire going. It's a tent. Right. Exactly. Like five pieces of material sewn together. Yeah, it's not like a geodesic dome or something. Like yes, <laughs> it's a, it's like some canvas and sticks. Right. It's a 1959 Soviet era tent. Like, <laughs> it's not even like what you get at REI. <laughs> you know? Um, now what this doesn't explain though, are the massive injuries on the three bodies. Yeah. Those massive injuries are real weird. It doesn't explain 
the fact that all nine of them seem to have been caught up in this paradoxical undressing. You would think that would happen to some of them, but others might have just died of hypothermia. Someone may have survived, stayed in the tent, but all nine of them left the tent Yeah, in various states of undress. And it doesn't explain the radiation on the clothes. Yep. So that's why like this one, it's one of those stories where it's like, kind of like the Philadelphia experiment. There's all these like, natural explanations that are like probably mostly what happened right but but there's not one theory i found that like accounts for everything Mm -hmm. so that is the story of the dyatlov pass incident i don't know i mean my money is still kind of maybe it's a flying yeti (laughs) you could be maybe oh it's mothman maybe it's mothman and he was emitting his shrieking sounds and that scared them out i mean you know they always talk about how mothman like would create these like deep feelings of unease yep terror okay that's my theory it's mothman that's okay yep done let's push it up from like (laughs) a three on the believability scale to a seven Like aliens, I would say, would push it up to a five, but Mothman makes it a seven. Solid. Mothman makes it a seven. (laughs) (laughs) Mystery solved. Mystery solved. Mothman. Mothman strikes again. Yeah. So yeah, it is. It is definitely one of the the weirder sort of unsolved mysteries out there. I do like the infrasound theory because that's just kind of strange. Yeah. I mean, I'm fat, like as a filmmaker, like I'm fascinated by what you can do with like, you know, sound design and movies by putting in like low bassy tones to like create unease. Didn't I just tell you about the thing that was like, there's that, oh, uh, what is it? It's um, some, uh, I'm not remembering. I keep wanting to say DMX, but that is absolutely not (laughs) the musician. But there is some song out there that they've found out. Is it EDM? Is that a style of music? Yeah. It's electronic dance music. Yeah. I think it's an EDM song that has a, a frequency that is so low that it bothers mosquitoes. So it was saying like, hey, if you're having an outdoor party, you mm, may want to play this song yeah. on repeat because it'll keep the mosquitoes away. Yeah. Um, I and think I mean, you that, might like, have, you or somebody might have sent me that. That's yeah. Funny. And I feel like. There, you know, there is stuff about like, I can't, I can't listen to, so there are different types of, of noise, right? There's like the white noise Mm -hmm. and then there's also pink noise. And I think there's also brown noise and I do better with pink and brown, but I can't hear white noise. Like it's unsettling to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and like along with that EDM song, like I know there's a filmmaker, there's a French filmmaker, a guy named Gaspard Noé, mm-hmm. who is, he's part of what's called the new French extremity movement. So it's like, it's like the French version of torture porn, basically. Oh, <laughs> yeah, fun. You, you look real excited. Um, <laughs> and he's done things like for screenings of his films, he has tried to like put big subwoofers that uh-huh. just pump out this like undetectable bass tone during the screening of the film uh-huh. to the point that he's essentially trying to cause people's bowels to just give while they're watching the movie yeah why because he's an an asshole well the the thing (laughs) the thing about that is that like okay cool but like the people working at the movie theaters are like not cool not like i don't want to have to clean up when somebody's bowels i don't think it worked i think it was when he was when he was (sighs) screening his movie irreversible which is by the way like one of the hardest movies to watch okay already i'm just trying to imagine and then it also (laughs) is going to cause like mass diarrhea like no no 
No, thank um, you. But I am fascinated. You know, it's like watch a movie like Eraserhead, like David Lynch's Eraserhead, you know, and really any David Lynch movie, he's, he's really great at using these kind of infrasound tones just to create a sense of unease. Mm-hmm. You know? So I've always kind of liked that theory, but I, but honestly, I think the most likely is that it at least started with hypothermia and paradoxical undressing. Okay. Cause like I said, this is a documented, like this has happened on Mount Everest right. this has happened to campers. Like this, right. this is like a known phenomenon. Right. That lines up with at least the first part of this. Yeah, it's just that last group. That last group is the thing that just is like, what happened to them? Yeah, exactly. It's that last group that is the that throws the wrench into that theory. I do also want to mention uh, before we're done, uh, there is a pretty good horror movie inspired by. It's called Devil's Pass. Okay, Um, it's from 2013. It was directed of all people by Rennie Harlan, who's like was a big he, he's a he's Finnish but he was a big Hollywood director he did like Die Hard 2 and Cliffhanger hmm. okay Long Kiss Goodnight like he was a big Hollywood guy but his career kind of hit the skids I think in the 2000s and so he went back to Europe and was making movies and he did this pretty low budget but like kind of surprisingly effective movie Devil's Pass which is like purports to answer it's like a found footage horror movie that purports to answer the questions a lot happened hmm. um okay. it was actually pretty well done so it's nice. worth like i don't want to oversell it it's like a, it's a good b movie so okay all right it's, if you're looking for a spooky season movie you could do a lot worse okay so. you have not watched speaking of spooky season you have not watched midnight mass have you no because i've been all sucked into fucking criminal minds but i, I think i'm gonna have to set criminal minds aside for a while yeah i just binged it with my brother and sister-in-law who were in town this weekend mm-hmm. and i'm i need to talk about it with someone scotty so yeah i'll watch try it. And, i'll try and watch it here soon i'm really curious i've been hearing wildly mixed reactions yes i'm like, sure you have like, I know it's Mike Flanagan who did Haunting of Hill House. And what was the second one? Uh, Blind Blind Manor. Manor. Mm-hmm. Which mostly people seem to really love those. But mm-hmm. this Midnight Mass seems real divisive. So I'm really curious now. Yeah. Well, when I see a lot of, like, hate posts on Twitter about something, I'm, like, immediately want to watch it. So. <laughs> <laughs> of course you do that's of course completely on brand for you yeah all right everybody get your spooky costumes ready um even though i don't know what's happening for halloween if you're gonna gather be sure to be safe if you haven't gotten vaccinated i mean Go it's too it. late to do that now for halloween but you should still do it anyways yeah uh for all the rest of the holidays. Uh, We are also quickly approaching the end of Hispanic Heritage Month, which is a weird thing because that runs September 15th to October 15th. Hmm. So by the time this episode comes out, it will be done. Today is also National Indigenous Peoples Day, the day that we were recording. Yeah, lots of weird stuff. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, you all know what to do. Subscribe, rate, review, share this podcast with your friends and neighbors uh stay weird stay curious and we'll see you in a while bye bye so listen friends we'll blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find might be true and that's the weirdest thing